And children can be dismissed for Children's Church. The rest of you can turn your Bibles again if you didn't see that there to Ephesians chapter 1. We've been looking at these anchors to our souls, right? These identities that God gives us that anchor our souls in a world that's kind of is falling apart. I mean, obviously, I assume you watch the news occasionally and you see things, see difficult, bad things that are happening. Sometimes we look at at our lives and we, and we say, how can anything good come from X or Y? How does these things happen? And, and I'm specifically talking about, in a sense, that sense of shame that we have, that, you know, we can, we, we can dress up for church and we can, we can kind of go through life and we can paper over the cracks, so to speak. We can make it look like things are okay. But in the, we know that there are cracks there because that's why we're trying to paper over the cracks. And those cracks come at us, and it's not enough, and it's, maybe I just want to kind of help you see maybe some of the structure I've been going through in, in the sermon so far. A lot of times, trying to paper over the cracks is not simply a matter of, okay, you need to believe this, or you need to know this. Sometimes it's a matter of you need to live this. And I, when I say live, I'm not saying do this as much as I'm saying ex, ex, live, in, live in it. Live in what God has done for you. Because what, what he's listed off here is spiritual blessings that we've been given in Christ are, are nothing that we have done, right? They're, they're things that when he's listed off here that you're chosen, that you're adopted, that you're, that you're um, redeemed, that you've been made reveal to you what God's plan, what God's will is. None of those are things you have done, but you, you need to live in light of, and not just to, to know intellectually or to believe it simply by faith, but to, in a sense, to live in it, to experience it by walking in it. And, and shame isn't something that just you conquer and you, and you get over by saying, okay, I've, I've, I know this, check, it's good. I no longer feel shame. It's something that you have to, to live in and, and walk through. And, and so as I've, I've, as I've talked about each of these anchors, I usually have at the end this, how do you, how do you live in this? How do you live in this? And so uh, hopefully that'll help you understand where I'm coming from and the structure I'm doing that. Uh, this, this morning we're looking at Ephesians chapter 1, and at the, we're in a sense almost at the end of the paragraph of the blessings. And the, again, it's been like a, uh, you know, one of those panel books where we start with one and we open it up and then that reveals another panel that we open up after that. And so each one of these is connected. And we've gotten through the, in a sense, the, the major ones, the ones that are, that are, are directly connected. And in some ways now he's going back and he's saying, you, you might have missed it, but I want you to see two things that are true in light of the fact that you're chosen, that you're adopted, that you're redeemed, that you know God's plan for, the, for history and for the world. That w- w- you might have missed it, but here's a key truth that really should be part of this, in a sense, this anchor system that you have for your soul, and I want you to grasp it, and grasp it well. And that's the term that I'm using this morning of destined. He, he refers to it here, in, in him we have obtained an inheritance. The idea of an inheritance. Now, literally, in, in the Greek, it's not, the term isn't for inheritance. It, the term is, you've received a portion You've received a portion. You know, when they were dividing up like Iowa and some of these other states where you had these huge, vast tracts of land that nobody really owned, except the government, the government broke, it up, broke them up into 160-acre tracts, right? And, um, and then you could buy these 160-acre tracts, and then you owned it, and you could... It, and it was kind of, I think it was called the Homesteading Act, where you... If you remember, like uh, a little house in the prairie, right, or th- places like that, you had, you had to go and you had to homestead and farm the land for a certain period of time. And if you farmed the land for that period of time, it was yours. And the, and the point was is that you might not have any portion 
in, in, in this country, so to speak, but you could gain a portion by signing up and going through and, and having this portion if you worked the land as your own. And it, in some ways, it's become known as the American dream, right? Your slice, your portion of the good life. And in some ways, we're all looking for that good life, that, that slice, that portion of the good life. We know we can't have it all, you know, but we, we want a portion of it. We want that, that portion of it that we can enjoy and have, right? So uh, think for a minute here of how would you define your portion of the good life? You know, if you're five... It might be, my portion of the good life is, I don't have to go to school, right? You know, hey, isn't this awesome? Or if you're 50, your portion of the good life might be, I get to retire early, right? But what have you been living for over the last couple of years? What's your slice of the good life that you wish you had? It might be that my family was at peace with one another. It might be, uh, might be a, a literal home, like I wish I had a home that I owned myself. Or it might be, you know, uh, I just want a job that makes X amount of money because then that would take care of everything. What is this slice of the good life that you, ha- that you wish you had or you are celebrating because you do have? In America, it seems like we've gone to the, the, the fact that, that that slice of the good life is really up to us. It's really up to us. If you work hard, if you do X, Y, and Z, if you get a degree, I mean, we live in, we live in Ames, right? If you get a degree, and especially if you get a PhD, then you can have a slice of the good life. You can have this, this portion that, that is, is good for you. And it's all about personal control and, some, and somewhat self-definition. You define for yourself what the good life is, right? Like the messages we hear repeatedly over and over and over is, what do you want to do? What's your dream? Where's your heart? And if you would know yourself better, you would be able to define that portion of the good life for yourself. And then, once you've defined it, you can go after it and get it. Because this is America, after all, right? And this, this is a challenge, right? Because we, we know also intrinsically that, that, that getting there can be a challenge. Actually achieving it, getting the slice of the good life can be a challenge. Calvin and Hobbes is a great illustration of many truths of the world. There's a, there's a comic strip that illustrated what I'm talking about pretty clearly. It says, Calvin is hurtling down a snowy sl- slope on a sled with his friend Hobbes, the tiger, right? Conducting a discussion about sin, actually. Um, can you imagine, of course, this is like on a sled hurtling down a hill, right? So you think a kid is not thinking about this, but that's the whole charm of Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin is saying to Hobbes, I'm getting nervous about Christmas. Hobbes says, you're worried you haven't been good? Calvin responds, that's just a question. It's all relative. What's Santa's definition? How good do you have to be to qualify as good? I haven't killed anybody. That's good, right? I haven't committed any felonies. I didn't start any wars. Wouldn't you say that's pretty good? Wouldn't you say I should get lots of presents? Hobbes, but maybe good is more than the absence of bad, Calvin. See, that's what worries me, you know. 
But when we talk about the good life, we think, I should, I should be good enough to deserve it, and yet we're like, but I don't know that I am. And especially if you live long enough and you see the mistakes you've made and the consequences of those mistakes and, and how that plays out sometimes, you think, well, I shouldn't really deserve the good life in a sense, right? Or maybe I'm going to have to work extra hard to make up for the mistakes. And we live in a time and a world that's, that's, that's broken that a lot of things aren't working the way that we hoped they would. This isn't a new thing in history. Abraham Lincoln, in 1863, designated April 30th as a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. Let me just read a portion of the, what his proclamation was. It says, It is the duty of nations as well as of men who owe their dependence on the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. The awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. In t- in t- here's, here's his point. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has grown, but we have forgotten God. His point is, is that sometimes when we think we have the good life, we forget God, the one who gives us the good life in a sense, at least if you believe in God. And what we're going to see this, this morning as we look into Ephesians is that this, this inheritance, this lot, this slice of the good life, so to speak, that we all want to have in various ways is something that God has planned for us, and it's not always what we think it should be, but it's way better than what we ever planned it to be. So let's look at Ephesians again, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, and notice what he says here. Again, he says, in Christ, that is, in what Christ has done for us, and I'll come back to that, we have obtained an inheritance. Again, I've said, it's, it's more like, literally, it's we have obtained a portion. It's, it's a lot like what the Old Testament promised land was like. You remember? They, 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 were, they, were, they were rescued out of Egypt. They were headed for the promised land. And, and Joshua, and Moses and Joshua told the Israelites here, we're going to go into the promised land and every family is going to get a portion and it's going to be yours forever. I mean, you might have to, if things don't go quite right, you might have to give it up for a few years, but you always get it back at a certain point in time. It's yours. It's, it's something that you can't lose. It's this portion. And of course, they they lost the land, right? They were kicked out of the land. They, they, they lost the whole thing. Why? Because they, they did not obey. They did not follow God like they should. They did not worship God. They turned to other gods. And, and here, here Paul is saying that we have obtained, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance that... that we, that we have obtained it. It's, it's ours. It's ours permanently. Why? He says, because he says, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Again, we have to think about this in, in terms of what, what, are our, what are our options? Well, again, our options for obtaining this inheritance are what God does for us or what we do for us. There was an an anecdotal story told about a man named Fred who inherited a huge land grant. 
but the will provided that he should choose land in either Chile or Brazil. He chose Brazil. Unhappily, if he had chosen Chile, he would have received his inheritance in land on which they had discovered uranium, gold, and silver, but he chose Brazil. When he arrived in Brazil, he had to choose between receiving his inheritance in a coffee plantation or a land with Brazil nut trees. He chose the nut trees, and immediately the bottom fell out of the nut market, but coffee futures went up $2 a pound. The government took the control of the nut farm for back taxes, and Fred was left destitute. Fred pawned his Rolex watch for the money he needed to fly back to either New York or Boston. He chose Boston. When the New York plane for New York taxied up, he noticed it was a brand new airplane. Everything was brand new. After a several hour delay, the plane for Boston arrived. It was a 1928 twin-engine plane held together with bailing wire, and it was filled with cigar smokers and unattended crying babies. Over the mountains, one of the engines fell off, and Fred, frightened by his earlier bad choices and fearing for his life, asked for two parachutes. He jumped. As he fell through the air, he tried to make up his mind which ripcord to pull. He pulled the cord on the left, but nothing happened. He pulled the cord on the right, and it broke. In desperation, the poor fellow cried out, God, save me! And a great hand from heaven reached down, seized him by the wrist, and left him dangling in the air. Then a gentle but inquisitive voice asked, Which God? If the choices are up to us, I think, frankly, we have to admit that often we, we make the wrong choices, right? Like, we think, oh, I've, I've, I've got this, I've got this, I can make a good choice. But then we make a choice, and we, then we look back on that choice, and we're like, ooh, man, if I had known X or I had known Y, I would have probably made a different decision. But now I've made that decision, and... And this is why it comes down to, when we talk about our inheritance, we have to talk about which God do you really want, Do you want a God that's like, well, it's up to you. You choose. You can figure it out for yourself. You can make the inheritance you want. You can can do whatever you please. I'll, I'll support you. Or do you want a God that's like, no, I know what's best. I know what's good. And not only do I know what's best and good, but I'm gonna work out the details so that you arrive where I want you to be. Which God do you want? And here in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is saying, in a sense, it doesn't matter which God you want because the God that you need is the God who exists. He's the God who's in control. And this is how he puts it. It's, he's said it throughout. He's hinted at it and referred to it throughout He talks about how he chose us before the foundation of the world. In verse 5, he says, In love he predestined us for adoption. In verse 10, he says, He's made known the mystery of his will to us. And here in verse 11, he finally is like over the top and saying this. He says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, this this phrasing here in English sounds like, okay, he's got things under control, but in Greek it's even more emphatic than that. The point is, he's, he's saying, is this is the God who all things work according to the counsel of his will. It's not that he does everything. He allows us freedom to choose, but, but that, even that freedom to choose is superintended, is, is controlled by his manifest providence. There is nothing outside of his control. Let me just walk you through the, the words here. It says, according to the purpose, the, plan, the word here for purpose is plan. So, uh, so he has a plan, and he works, and the, the plan is according to, it's, it's based on him. Who is this person 
that this plan is based on. It's based on the one who all things work according to the counsel, the, 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 the guidance of his purpose, his will. So this plan is, is, is superintended by God. You say, well, but then how do we choose? Like, if I thought we had free will. We had free agency. We can choose what we want for ourselves. And that is true. God has given us uh, uh, the ability to choose. But even those choices are guided. The, 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 it's cl- most clear when you look at Christ. Peter in Acts chapter 2 puts it this way. Referring to Jesus' crucifixion. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You say, well, which is it? Did did Jesus die according to God's foreknowledge and plan or, or because wicked men killed him? The answer is yes. You say, but that doesn't make... Again, we're diving into the mystery of who God is, the mystery that God can be in control and still allow us to choose to, to, to do what that we want to do, in a sense. He's, he's saying even evil is under the superintendence of God. You say, but sometimes my works, I, I choose things and they don't go according to plan. But that doesn't mean they don't go according to God's plan. Does that make sense? Here's 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, well, okay. And I'm going to, I've already jumped into point number one. We have the grace of a predestined purpose. We have the grace of a predestined purpose. And let me just get up to, yeah. Here's 2 Corinthians 2. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the knowledge of him everywhere. So here's God's perspective. As he leads you through life, he leads you in triumphal procession. Like, this is victory for him. And yet you're like, but it doesn't seem like victory for me. (laughs) How does that work? He goes on to explain, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? He's like, sometimes people, we interact with them and they're like, well, man, you, you seem to love God, but I don't have, want to have anything to do with God. And we are, in a sense, a fragrance of death to death. It's not like we've done anything wrong. And even if we did do something wrong, it's still in God's sovereign plan. And if someone responds and says, oh man, look at the God you serve, I want to get to know that God better. Again, it's not based on anything we've done necessarily. It's according to God's superintending plan. It's not, we're not sufficient for these things. He goes on to say, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. He's not, like, I'm not telling you these things in order to get money from you or to get acclaim from you. I'm not here to, 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 to twist your arm so that I look good. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. It's like, hey, we have a savior. This per- the, and that's where you go back to verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. We don't obtain that inheritance. Christ obtained it for us. He went to the cross, paid the price for our sins so that we could be delivered from sin and death and, be, and obtain the inheritance of eternal life with God. Paul, or Peter, puts it this way. I don't, I don't have this verse up there. It's, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his mercy, his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, that is, is undying, undefiled. It, you can't, you can't um, make it impure and unfading. And this is always the word that gets me, because I know when I look at the stuff of my life, it fades, right? You get a new car, and you scratch it. You get a new computer, and it slows down. You get, you get, a, you get a new phone, and it breaks. Everything fades. But the inheritance that Peter is talking about here, the same inheritance that Paul is talking about, he says, is unfading. It's, it's that eternal sense of, wow, look at the newness and freshness and wonder of the inheritance that we have 
And not only is that, but it's kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He's saying, look, you who have this inheritance are, not only do you have this inheritance guarded in heaven for you, but you yourselves are guarded in, in, in preparation for that. And that's why Peter here goes on to say, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. He's saying, look, I know life is hard. I know life doesn't always add up. I know life is difficult that you, you lose people you love. Children don't act the way you want them to. You make decisions and you regret them. I know all of those things happen to you. And you suffer through those things. But that does not negate the fact that you have an inheritance in heaven waiting for you, undefiled, imperishable, and unfading. So that, why do we go through those trials then? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's he saying there? He's saying that under God's control, even the trials that we go through result in praise and honor and glory when Christ returns. Now, he could be talking about Christ's honor and glory, like, Christ, you got me through this. But actually, he's talking about our praise and honor and glory. You say, how do we know that? Well, go back to Ephesians chapter 1, because I haven't finished the verse. Verse 12, again, if he works all things according to the counsel of his verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. It says it right here. It's much more explicit here. That we might be to the praise. Now, ultimately, the praise is going to Christ for what he's done for us, but he's saying we are the praise, so we have to be praiseworthy. So God's purpose in this predestined grace is that he wants to make us praiseworthy. That's point number two. God wants to make us praiseworthy. You say, well, I'm not praiseworthy. I'm just Joe Schmo. I live in Ames, Iowa. I have seven kids and I try to keep them alive. You know. Sometimes I wonder if I'm going to make it, Right? But God, in his unmerited favor on your behalf, is actually working in your life so that when you stand before him, you are praiseworthy. You have good things done on your, that you have, that you are worthy of praise about and you are a praiseworthy person. I just want to point you to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where he goes into this, right? Ephesians 2, verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship. That is, it's, it's his masterpiece is maybe a better translation. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's the amazing mystery of God's providence, is that God is working in your life and he's prepared beforehand good things that you can do, good things that you can encourage and happen in order that, that, that you are a masterpiece and show off God's grace. You say, but how does this work? Again, we're back to something that it's not based on us. It's not based on us. It's that God is placing us here. I ran across the story about um, the world's fastest Indian, which is the story of Burt Monroe, who's a, a, a New Zealander who wanted to set a land speed record riding an Indian motorcycle. So he had this, uh, Indians aren't really made as much anymore, but they're, they're kind of famous, right? This, the, he had this 1920s Indian motorcycle that he worked on and worked on, and he finally, he got it to Utah, the place where they race and they set land speed records, right? You know, and the Salt Lake Flats, right? It's in Bonneville Salt Flats in Utah. 
And in a movie, they kind of put these words in his mouth. He's like, all my life, I've wanted to do something big, something bigger and better than all the other jokers. This is it, Bonneville. This is the place where big things happen. Do you realize, Rusty, the fastest man has ever gone on land is here, right here, where we are now? Malcolm Campbell did it with a bluebird. His son Donald did it with a Proteus. John Cobb went over 400 miles, all the great miles an hour, all the great attempts, George Eiston with the Thunderbolt, Mickey Thompson with the Challenger. I'm telling you, Rusty, this place is holy ground, holy ground, and I made it here. And the, the point, right, of the story is, is that he worked hard and he made it there. But in God's economy, in God's providence, in his control, he doesn't take us and, and like, okay, if you can make it there, then your life counts. Your life matters. If you can be good and do, do good things and make everything happen, then, then you've arrived finally and your life matters. That's not how God's providence and God's purposes work. Paul is telling the Ephesians here, the Ephesians, you're in Ephesus. And even though Diana is worshipped and your lives are just kind of a blip in history, yet you are under the providence of God and you are part of this huge, amazing plan. You're on holy ground right there, right now. You are on holy ground and what you do matters. Not because you have to do it perfectly. Not because you have to make everything happen and you have to win Ephesus for Christ. No, he's like, you just have to do what God has called you to do. He's prepared beforehand things for you to do. Just walk in them. That's what Ephesians 2, 10 is saying. It's saying, you don't have to force things. You just have to do what God wants you to do today. And do what God wants you to do tomorrow, when you get to tomorrow. Because right here, right now, you are in the place where God wants you to be. And he has prepared beforehand to get you there. So that when you stand in his presence, he's like, look at what you've done. And you're like, but I, all I do is wash dishes and take care of kids and, you know, run my kids around. Are you seeking to do good? Then you're right where you need to be. God is working in you a masterpiece a masterpiece that only he can create. If we, if we move away from the providence of God, we always end up in our own performance. We always end up in our own performance. And I don't know about you, but my performance isn't very good. I struggle like, I try to do good stuff, you know, say the right things, do the right things, plan the right things, be a good dad, be a good pastor, but it doesn't always work out the way I plan. And usually when I look back on it, I'm like, mm, it's my fault. <laughs> it didn't work out the way I planned. I messed up in some fashion. My plans don't go very well. If it's all up to me, I am insufficient. Would you agree with me about you? That your plans for your life tend to not happen exactly the way you want them to. The, the good things you intend to happen don't fully happen. In fact, sometimes the, the bad things you're trying to avoid, those are the things that happen. And you're like, what's my life then? Your life is not based on your performance in Christ. It's not based on your performance. It's based on Christ and the inheritance that he won for you at the cross and the plan that God has for you to bring you to being a masterpiece of his design. 
There's two words that, that echo what the masterpiece is that he's talking about. The first is the idea of the bride of Christ, that he's making us not just individually, but also corporately into this bride, the, the, the one who walks down the aisle and everyone stares at. Like, isn't this amazing? He's making us into that. And just, oh yeah, there's Ephesians 2.10. Let me go on to Revelation chapter 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty thunders of peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. He's saying, one day we're going to be the bride of Christ and we're going to be dressed in fine linen uh, and people are going to be amazed at us. But notice how it goes back and it says, it was granted to her to clothe herself, right? She doesn't clothe her, she doesn't get but, but the, the, her righteous deeds. But again, it's this mystery that God is sovereignly in control of your life. And every day when you get up, he's got things he wants you to do, good things. And if you, and if you say, well, I, the good things are just like washing dishes and doing laundry and making food and you know, going to work and, and just not angering my boss. That's great. <laughs> These are all part of God's sovereign plan. Don't don't look for the great things among the mundane things. Look, look at the mundane things and see them as God's superintended plan for your life. That in the midst of those mundane, common things, God is going to do something special that you cannot understand because you are not sufficient for these things. This is how God is at work. He is in control, and he has a plan for your life that as you wake up day after day after day, and you go to school, and you're like, hey, I just, I just learned about, you know, algebra. Algebra stinks, man. I hate AX plus B equals C. What does that even mean? Learn it. Not because it means anything amazing, but because you have a chance to know God better and you have a chance to do good and you have a chance to, to learn from your teachers and you have a chance to help your classmates do good in the midst of the mundane. Why? Because God is at work in the midst of your mundane, making it holy and precious and righteous so that when you stand before him, you are his bride. There's another concept here, though, that I want to help you understand that, that since we're the bride of Christ, we reign with Christ. Again, Revelation chapter 5 says, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. So, so being part of this bride is also that we get to reign with Christ. We, we get to, to be part of those ruling the earth, in a sense. And, and here's maybe a hint to help, a help in helping you understand why you're going through trials and why life is so difficult and why things are so hard at times. is because God never lets someone rule who hasn't been through suffering. God never puts someone in charge who hasn't suffered and knows what it takes to suffer and go through suffering. You look at David, he had to suffer before he became king. You look at Jesus, he had to suffer all the way to the point of the cross. And one day, we're going to all bow at his feet. And if that's true for David and Jesus, it's true for us as well. The trials that you go through, the suffering that you experience... It's preparation so that when we get 
to Christ reigning on the earth and the people that are on the earth at the time who, who, who we, we reign over, they're going to look at us and not be like, oh man, I wish they wouldn't reign over us, but like, I'm glad that they're in charge because they know what it's like to suffer and they know what it's like to, to feel pain and agony and hurt and, and yet they're going to be sympathetic to me and help me and encourage me to do what I need to do right now. Can you imagine if our governor, you're like, man, she knows what it's like to suffer. If our president was like, man, he knows what it's like to suffer and, and he's, he, he, I can trust him because he's been there, done that. We don't have rulers like that. But God is going to make a world and reign over that world where the rulers of it know what it's like to suffer. Why? Because it's praiseworthy. We praise those who are willing to suffer. Like what Chris shared about this father and this son, right? We, we praise people who are willing to suffer to do good things. So in the midst of your life, if you are suffering, and it is suffering to do laundry even when you're tired, and to parent a child who doesn't want to listen, and to work under a boss who hates you. And to, to go through life wondering, okay, how, how is this all going to go? That's, those are all points of suffering. You say, well, it's not as bad as... It's okay. Suffering is suffering. It, it just is. And I don't know the suffering that God is taking you through. And I don't know the suffering God will take you through. I... I do know this, that God is a shepherd. He cares for his sheep. And in his sovereign plan, he is not wasting the suffering you're going through. He is not ignoring the suffering you're going through. He is actually using the suffering you're going to, through to create something amazing. So that when you stand before him, you are to the praise of his glory. Not just that you, you are praising God for his grace, but that you are to the praise of his glory. People are looking at you and saying, look at God's grace. Look at the amazing way God has worked. This, this is this sovereign plan that God has. And if you, again, if you take away the sovereignty, if you take away the predestination part, again, it's all up to us. It turns into a message of, you better do everything that God wants you to do or you aren't going to be <laughs> to the praise of his glory. I, I, I wouldn't want to be there, frankly. Fortunately, Paul doesn't put us there. He puts us in God's sovereign, good, shepherding hand that, can, that holds us, that keeps us. So how do we live? How do we live this? Because if I'm honest with you, right, then I don't live this way very often. I don't, I don't trust the sovereignty of God like I should. I'm more interested in what I need to get done today. You know, like I wake up and I think to myself, man, I got to get X, Y, and Z done. And if I don't, my wife's not going to be happy. My kids are not going to be happy. My church is not going to be happy. God's not going to be happy. I'm in trouble. You know? We don't live waking up saying, oh, God's got some good things to do today. He knows I'm going to mess up, but he's got some good things he wants me to do today. And I get a chance to do those things. Isn't that awesome? He's got a plan. I just got to walk in it. So how do we live as destined? Well, first of all, it means going back to suffering and, and just rethinking it a little bit. And Paul does that gloriously for us in Romans chapter 8. Right? He says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. Again, we are to be to the praise of his glory. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, 
in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Okay? He's making the comparison of history and everything going on in our world to childbirth. Okay? And you mothers out there can know way better than I can what that's like. But he's saying... It's painful. It's awful. And you're like, but is it worth it? Is it worth it? And he's, he's like saying, but because of Christ, because we know he died on the cross and rose again, we know it's worth it. We not only do we know it's worth it, we can't even imagine. Paul says, you can't even imagine the good things that God has prepared for those who love him. And this is when, why when we talk about our inheritance, you're like, well, what is it? And Peter says, it's imperishable and undefiled and unfading. Well, what is it, Peter? Like, tell me, what, what is it? It's, it's eternal life. Well, but what is it? He's like, and the thing is, we can't grasp it. We can't fully understand it until we're there, until we're experiencing it. So, so don't put your hope in the experiences of life because he's like, the, the inheritance you have is much better. You say, but I can't connect the dots. Why would God do X in my life if he's trying to get me to, to, to there? You can't connect the dots because you don't know what there is yet. You can't put it together yet. But here's what we know. If the God who loved us enough to send his son to die for us while we were still his enemies, he loved us, then that same God who loves us is superintending the details of our lives so that we can wait with hope. We can love with hope. We can serve with hope. Another he, he ends by saying this, for in this hope we were saved, but now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sweet, sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You gotta wait, I'm sorry. I don't know what the, the inheritance is. I don't know what it's like. But God says it's worth it. And I can trust him. And you can too. Peter puts it this way living as destined. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Just, he's, like, he's just saying, be realistic. Understand where you're at. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. You know what he's saying here? He's like, okay, you're, God has a plan for your life, and yes, it'll involve suffering, so what do you do? Just look at the people around you, love them, open up your home to them, be hospitable to them, He's like, but that doesn't seem so great. But that's, you, you're walking on holy ground. Your life is a holy place. You're like, but it doesn't seem to matter. But it does because God is in control and you aren't. That's the key foundational truth. If God is in control, even of the messes you've made of your life and the mess-ups and, and the sorrows you have in your life, he can turn sorrows to joy. He can turn mess-ups to beauty. That's what the God we have, the God we know, that's who he is. He ends it this way. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's stewards of God's, as good stewards of God's various gifts, various grace, right? He's just saying, God has given you grace day after day after day. And it'll look different from day to day, but you got today. Use today. Live today. Trust today. Because you know what? He today is giving you, is working in you so that tomorrow you are a masterpiece to God's grace. So what people will look at your life and say, God, man, it's amazing what God did in that person's life and God did through that person's life. I, I, I could never have seen all those things. That's the whole point, is if we can see it, if you can see everything that God is doing in your life, then you are God. And too often that's what we want for ourselves. 
We want to see everything that God is doing in our lives and therefore saying, I'm, I'm good, I'm good, I can hang on to myself. I don't need to be ashamed of myself because I know what's going on. And God's like, no, I'm God and I'm going to show you the grace that I have in your life. Just trust me, walk with me today, trust me today. I'm doing something way more amazing than you could ever imagine. So as you've received a gift, use it. If it's speaking, speak. If it's serving, serve. But realize God's grace is at work in your life. His sovereign hand is over superintending your life. And if you're with me, I don't like certain details of my life. I, I don't like certain decisions I've made. I don't like other, certain decisions others have made on behalf of my life. I don't like certain aspects. But here's my hope. Here's my trust. God is in control. And he is doing things according to his plan to make something beautiful. I am what I am by the grace of God. And what I am is not yet been revealed, but it's been foretold that I am a workmanship of Jesus Christ, created to do good works which God has prepared beforehand that I should walk in them. And so I am going to walk. Will you join me? It's just as simple as, again, what, what do you need to do today? How do you need to walk today? Can you be ready to pray? Can you be ready to be hospitable? Can you be ready to suffer well? Can you be ready to use what you have? You're like, I don't, I don't have much. That's okay, you know. That's what's amazing, right? We give an offering every year to missions and missionaries. We don't have much. Not like we have a million dollars we can give to missionaries every year. But you know what? Every year what we give matters. Not because it's such a great amount, but because God is at work in the midst of it. And that's what matters. Will you trust that? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are in the midst of our mundane, making it holy, doing things that we cannot imagine. And Lord, it's, it's hard sometimes. We, we admit, we, we wish we could see how our performance matters. We, could, we wish we could see that what, what you are doing in our lives and through our lives. We wish we could understand everything that's happening in our world and what to do about it. But you are God and we are not. You are in control, and we are not. You are great and righteous and holy, and we are not. But we are connected to you through Jesus Christ. He has won for us a portion, an inheritance, eternal life with you forever, and is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. And we get to walk into it each day by faith not basing our lives on our performance, but simply using the opportunities you give us to seek to do good, and even when we mess up, knowing that you are in control. Lord, may we walk in that joy. May we walk in that peace. And may we walk in your love for us in Christ. We thank you that you are in control. In your son's name.